Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Caleb Zachran, Assistant Editor of the New Books Network, and you're listening to New Books in Public Policy. Today I'm speaking with Mark Paul, Assistant Professor of Economics at the Blaustein School of Planning and Public Policy at Rutgers University, about his new book, The Ends of Freedom, Reclaiming America's Lost Promise of Economic Rights. The Ends of Freedom examines the legacy of economic rights in America, particularly since President FDR's famous State of the Union Address in 1944. Mark argues for a renewed focus on economic rights, sometimes referred to as positive liberties, to address poverty and inequality in America. Mark, thank you for joining me today on the New Books Network. Uh, it's wonderful to be here. Of course. You know, this was a, a book that I thought you, you did a great job of just taking a lot of different themes, different ideas that you like have people been writing about in the last few years and uh, packaging it for, for, for an American audience. Uh, a lot of those uh, other interesting books on inequality tend to take a kind of a global or European approach, and I thought that that the American focus was was really useful. Um, but before jumping into the book, I was wondering if you could just tell us a little bit about yourself and your background. Sure. So I am a professor here at Rutgers University now, uh, but before that, I actually went to culinary school. So I took a you know really different route to becoming an economist. I I grew up. Uh, largely eating DiGiorno pizza and other frozen delights and thought food was just mediocre and, and thought there had to be something else here. And uh, thank you to public broadcasting. Julia Child uh, taught me how to cook basically when I, when I was uh, you know, 13, 14 and uh, fell in love with food, went to culinary school and worked in restaurants all through high school and, and in my early 20s. And you know, that's when I actually started asking questions about the economy. I was working in fairly high-end restaurants and uh, I, nor the people that were working on the line with me, uh, could afford to eat in the restaurants that we were cooking. And, and, and I got to you know, thinking, well, you know, what is this economic system we've built? Why is it that the people making the food can't afford to eat the food? And uh, what should be done about it? And then the financial crisis struck. And, and that's, you know, kind of those, the combination of those two things really got me hooked on economics. And, and since then, I've really never, never looked back. Um, you know, the past two decades, I've really dedicated to trying to understand the causes, consequences, and potential solutions to inequality here in America. And that's, uh, was my primary motivation for, for writing this book, which is, is out this month. So addressing the the first thing that you that you talk about in the book in in chapters one, two, and three, uh, specifically in chapter one, you talk about the current economic state in America. Uh, and I was wondering if you could just talk about that, especially as concerns inequality and poverty. Like like where do we stand today? Yeah, it's a great question. Let me first say that, you know, we've all read a dozen books about why neoliberalism is a problem and why unfettered capitalism is is just unleashing you know, a lot of unnecessary human suffering. And so when I set out to write this book, I wanted to tell my story and my understanding of that, but it was really important to keep that relatively short and instead really work to provide an affirmative vision for what the economy could look like instead. Often, you know, we have the, you know these books that are nine chapters of critique and then one short chapter with, here's what to do about it. And I kind of tried to flip that on its head here in this book. 
Um, nevertheless, I think it's really important for us to think about where we are here in America today. You know, America is a ridiculously wealthy country. If wealth were distributed equally, each and every one of us would have half a million dollars to our name. Those of us living in, you know, with our partner would be millionaires uh, when we combined our wealth. Each and every one of us, if we had, you know, equal income, would be getting an annual income flow of ninety-five thousand dollars. You know, we wouldn't be living the the Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk lives, but we'd be doing pretty darn well. Um, but of course, that's not how you know income and wealth are distributed in this country. In fact, they're distributed grossly inequitably. And indeed, what we find ourselves in is, is this problem where we have forty million Americans in poverty today. And roughly another hundred million Americans, kind of just on the edge, you know, you know, they're above the poverty line, but they're still living largely paycheck to paycheck with a couple hundred dollars in their savings accounts. Certainly not enough to to even pay for an emergency room visit with decent health insurance, let alone without health insurance. And so, you know, economic precarity, unfortunately, is the American norm. You know that the, it's, you know, we've known that the lower class isn't doing okay. The American working class largely isn't doing okay either. You know, yes, the top twenty percent, give or take, are doing largely fine, uh, but the majority of Americans are are struggling on a regular basis, and it's something that concerns me deeply, uh, particularly as I talk about in the rest of the book, and I'm sure we'll discuss here today, because I I'm very confident you know things could be structured in a different way to make sure that those people weren't um, you know living right on the edge or, or for millions, you know, having already fallen off off the ledge. So in chapter two, you you get into sort of the the background, the the, the prehistory of, of our moment, uh, and you look at the ascent of neoliberalism. Uh, something I found interesting was how you, you kind of start this story by talking about uh, John F. Kennedy and Jimmy Carter, uh, two Democrats. So I was wondering if you'd talk about sort of early history of neoliberalism and how you understand neoliberalism and and also you know as you said before at the outset there's been so many books written on neoliberalism why it's a problem why it's how, how do you sort of uh position your view on neoliberalism in the broader debate that is ongoing so much to unpack there so you know first and foremost neoliberalism was kind of launched into the world as an idea to revive and slightly alter classic liberalism, the laissez-faire that had so utterly failed um, in the United States, you know, up until the Great Depression. And indeed, when Roosevelt um, came to office in the early 30s, uh, he won against Herbert Hoover, and they were completely ideologically opposed. Roosevelt, you know, being in favor of the New Deal, and and Herbert Hoover really pushing this idea of laissez-faire. But but laissez-faire, you know. Had the American people had completely lost their faith in, laissez, in the laissez-faire system in what today is essentially neoliberalism? You know, the shanty towns and and bread lines disavowed them of any notion that the free market would provide for them. Uh, you know, one of uh, Roosevelt's brain trust members had this lovely quote that I love when he came into office, saying, "The jig is up. The cat is out of the bag. There is no invisible hand. There never was." If the depression has not taught us that we are not capable of education, <laughs> you know, a little, a little, a little harsh, but I think quite true. Um, so, a- out of the ashes of classic liberalism came this idea of, of neoliberalism to revive you know, the the full faith in the free, the so-called free market. Um, and this was put forth by people who have become household names like Frederick Hayek and Milton Friedman. 
and the core of the you know intellectual war they were waging was a war of freedom. Now, both of Friedman's books, Capitalism and Freedom and Free to Choose, center freedom right there in the name. And they were trying to push forth this argument that, you know, no, the government cannot and should not provide for all. Instead, we need to focus on what have become known as negative liberties, um, which are famously outlined in the Bill of Rights. Things, you know, they provide us the the right from intervention. So, for example, you know, the, the, they try to limit what the government can uh, say individuals can and or should do. Um, and they couple those with access to what they call the free market. Um, but, you know, they fail to, I think, really grasp or at least, you know, fully address the, the huge failures um, of neoliberalism, even within its own definition. So let me just give you one example, the, the wonderful work of the philosopher Elizabeth Anderson and her work, Private Government, does a wonderful job talking about how you know, neoliberalism tries to protect citizens from government, but in turn, it really lets them be exploited day in and day out where they spend most of their waking hours with their employer. So even on neoliberalism's own ground of this notion of negative liberty, freedom from coercion, it, it really utterly fails given that most of us don't actually have the ability to easily walk away from our employer at any time. Um, so, you know, neoliberalism really caught on here in the U.S. In, in the 1980s, famously with Reagan, is the classic story. But in fact, what I try to talk about in the book is that, you know, that its predecessors were lying both with Carter, who was a you know deregulation fanatic, and Kennedy, who strongly believed in tax cuts. He actually is the one who cut the top marginal tax rate from 91% down to 71%, though Reagan cut it from 71% all the way down to 28%. So, so Reagan does get credit for cutting it further, uh, though Kennedy really ushered in the idea of you know, tax cuts to stimulate growth, which is precisely the line of thinking we continue to hear from Republicans today, most recently with um, former President Trump and his Tax Cut and Jobs Act, which he passed in 2017. With, with this sort of understanding and background uh, that you've that you've laid out about uh, the the rise of neoliberalism, you know, I would say that the thing that that your book that's sort of unique about about your book that you offer is this discussion of economic rights. So I was wondering if you talk about just the history of economic rights in America and uh, the periods of time the the intellectual leading lights that have promoted this idea, um, and yeah, why essentially what it is that you think that you think people should take away from this history? Sure. So economic rights are this idea that each and every person, as a member of our society, is entitled not only to political rights and civil rights as well as uh, reproductive rights, which are increasingly coming under attack, particularly uh, in, in conservative states across the South, but also economic rights, this notion that, you know, it, that in order to live truly free and meaningful lives, we need more than the ability to vote. We need a roof over our head. We need access to decent paying employment. We need food on the table. Now, we need an education. Um, these are fundamental rights that are necessary for us to be a functional member of our democratic order. Um, now, in the U.S., these rights really came on the main stage in 1944 when Roosevelt it called for an economic bill of rights and demanded that Congress pass one with haste. You know, At the time, the Allies were turning the tide of World War II, and Roosevelt and his team were finally able to kind of turn their attention fully back to the domestic front. 
and think about what the culmination of the New Deal was. And indeed, Roosevelt put forth the Economic Bill of Rights precisely as that kind of the cherry on top for his life's work passing you know various pieces of legislation that make up the New Deal. When when people talk about the New Deal, they forget that you know over a hundred pieces of legislation collectively are what we deem the New Deal here today. Uh, so it's not like we pass one or two bills that make up the New Deal, right? Uh, and so Roosevelt though uh, realized that the job was not done yet. Previously, he had gave his four freedom speech um, where he called for the freedom from you know religion, freedom from fear, freedom of speech, and you know, most importantly, freedom from want, most importantly for our conversation here today. And so these economic rights would deliver that. But you know, this didn't just come out of nowhere. Roosevelt's lifelong mission was to provide cradle to grave security. But you know, Roosevelt didn't invent this on his own. In fact, he was drawing on American luminaries dating back to the founders, uh, folks like Thomas Paine, for instance, who essentially argued for what became social security. He was the first person to lay out this idea of, of social security. He also was one of the first people to lay out the idea of basic income through what he called the citizen's dividend. I mean, you know, Paine was Paine was quite the radical uh, and, and author, of course, of Common Sense, the, the most incendiary pamphlet and most widely read pamphlet of the Revolutionary War era. Um, but, you know, we can also look to other American uh, luminaries like both Jefferson, who promised us our, our life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness, and Lincoln, who actually might have done the most in the legislative process before Roosevelt to actually enact those positive rights into law through things like the Homestead Act, which granted land to predominantly white uh, settlers across the United States. Now, you know, we should certainly acknowledge and recognize that in many instances, um, you know, non-white households were not granted land and uh, native households were largely dispossessed of land. Um, yet for, for the kind of the, the citizens, um, the idea was that they needed access to the means of production. They needed land ownership in order to fully participate in our government. It really was based in this notion of economic rights. And this is a notion that we just haven't really been talking about in conversations about you know political reform, which I think is a real shame, particularly because these economic rights didn't die with Roosevelt when he passed a year after giving the speech. They were carried on by the civil rights movement. Uh, in, in 1963, when we had the March on Washington, it was the March on Washington for freedom and jobs, right? I mean, the most common sign held there was civil rights plus full employment equals freedom. And here, King and other key members of the civil rights movement, like Bayard Rustin and A. Philip Randolph, had long tied civil rights and economic rights together. And you know, famously, King's last piece of writing um, that was published after his his assassination was entitled, We Need an Economic Bill of Rights. And this was his central platform that he was pushing for the Poor People's Campaign back in 1968. In, in that story too, King's assassination is quickly followed by like the, the era that you would might, might define as the neoliberalism. And you know, it's, it's, it's who's to say what would have happened if King, King would have survived. Like he very well could have, be, could have become president and then, you know, we might not be having this conversation or we'd be having a very, very different conversation. So uh, you know, part two of your book covers economic rights. Uh, and I was wondering if just for the next few questions, uh, I could ask you, uh, so that we, we could just get the listeners to think about these, these particular rights and, uh, why it is that you put them forth and just some of the policy ideas that, um, that you might like to see or that you think, uh, could be considered to ensure these rights. 
So I think uh, let's start with the first one that you outlined, which is just the right to work. So, so how do you think about right to work uh, and what would that look like from a policy level? Yeah. So if you ask average Americans what the right to work means, you actually might not get the answer that you and I might think of. You know, when you talk to normal folks, people think a right to work means the right to a well-paying job. Now, if you go talk to the policy want crowd, which I suspect is is largely listening to this podcast here today, when they hear right to work, you know, often folks kind of, uh, 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 you know, recoil because they're thinking of the conservative notion of of open shops uh, that are are built to bust unions. You know, I mean, it's funny the Democrats have been cheering all of the Inflation Reduction Act money flowing to predominantly red states. And when you pause and think about why are they flowing to red states, it's because they're flowing to anti-union states um, and in turn lower wages. But but back to the job guarantee, I mean, or back to full employment, the idea of, of kind of the right to a job, which is achieved through true full employment, is something that we can achieve through you know a, a number of policies. But the most important one that's central that I talk about in the book is a job guarantee, simply providing everybody with access to well-paying employment. If you want to work, you should be able to work. That's not a partisan issue. I mean, it's part of Americans, the American history and this Puritan work ethic that you know the nation was kind of built on that you know everybody who wants to work should be able to and they should should be able to put decent food on the table at the end of the day. And so, you know, folks across the political spectrum actually kind of support this idea. In fact, during the pandemic, Gallup ran a poll and found that 93% of Americans, including 87% of Republicans, supported the government creating jobs for the unemployed to ensure that they had an income, had a way to contribute to society, and also had skill development. You know, when you talk to private employers, the last thing, unfortunately, they want to hire is unemployed workers because those workers haven't been in the workplace using their skills on a daily basis. They want workers with experience. Um, and the, the job guarantee is a way to kind of solve this long-lived market failure where the private sector is simply never willing or able to provide true full employment here in the U.S., now, I, I can already hear some people saying, well, we're at full employment, or according to the Federal Reserve, we're actually beyond full employment. Um, and I, I would challenge that notion, and I try to, in the book, explain why I, uh, the way we commonly use the term full employment is deeply misguided. Now, as we have this conversation, unemployment is sitting at about 3.6%. Um, but you know, in fact, uh, if you look at the numbers, that means that millions upon millions of Americans do not have a job despite wanting one. Um, during World War II, uh, from 1943 to 1945, we actually got unemployment down to about 1.7%. So I don't think we should be thinking of where we are today as kind of as low as we can go at all. Um, and, and indeed, I think we need to do everything within our means to get unemployment as, as low as possible because unemployment is, is just a terrible, terrible thing to push on, you know, to push on people. I mean, I've seen members of my own family go through very long bouts of unemployment you know, it's it's strongly associated with mental illness. It's strongly associated with poverty and and you know losing your house, losing your car. You know, it's strongly associated with with divorce and other relationship woes. I mean, unemployment not only has a has an individual cost, but it also has a huge social cost. Uh, you know, people who want to contribute that can't. That means that they're not helping us lead better lives, more fulfilling lives either, because they're not out there being nurses or teachers or you know, road maintenance workers, you name it. 
Uh, so, so the idea here is that through a job guarantee, we provide everybody with the ability to contribute and earn a living. A question just before going into some of the other rights that you discuss is, you know, there, there have been, been many politicians in the past that have argued that, uh, you know, there should be some sort of like workfare where someone you work and then if you work, then you, then the government will help you. But if you uh, have the ability to work, but choose not to, then you shouldn't be able to have access to these things. So I, you know, do you see the right to work as kind of underpinning some of these other rights or is it not a separate, separate right? Yeah, it's a great question. And, and here I'm going to agree with somebody that that folks might not suspect I would, which is Richard Nixon, who vehemently opposed work requirements. In his words, you know, work requirements are utterly ridiculous. And I have to agree with him. I mean, I do not think that we should tie social support to work requirements, not at all. Uh, what I do think, though, is that a tremendous amount of dignity is achieved through work and, and self-respect. And so I think we should ensure people have access to work. But as we'll talk about, you know, in the coming minutes here, you know, there's a whole other set of rights that I lay out. And so if somebody doesn't want to work or isn't able to work, there's no reason we should be denying them of absolute basic needs. Uh, but but here, you know, one thing we can look at is, you know, a worker that's, say, engaging in the job guarantee program will earn a higher, you know, a better living than a worker that chooses not to work and you know gets income through the basic income program that that i propose so there is a difference this uh this next right that you outline the right to housing uh is one i find particularly interesting i live in in new york city and this is like one of the biggest issues because there's just constantly a lack of supply for housing which i think housing prices uh in new york with the exception of that slight dip during the pandemic have been basically just pushing into stratospheric levels. So certainly if you talk about right to housing and what that looks like and, you know, what that might mean for the real estate market, because, you know, uh, just to sort of put the devil's advocate position forward, some people would say that, oh, if the government is pushing for more development, more home building, then all these people with uh, mortgages who are depending on their home value to go up are going to get get crushed. So how do you think about something like right to housing? Yeah. So, you know, uh, people need a roof of their head. You know, I was talking with a, a individual that had been unhoused at numerous points in their lives, and they, you know, turned to me and said, "Look, you're not going to be productive on any level if you don't know where you're going to sleep that night." And you know, unfortunately, we have a situation where roughly half a million Americans are homeless, and tens of millions of Americans experience homelessness at some point in their lifetime. It's a, it's a really troubling situation that we find ourselves in. And often it's because we have A, a shortage of housing, and then B, you know, rent is just too damn high. That's because landlords have power to push it up and we don't have fair regulations to enable, to protect renters. You know, I am lucky enough to own a home and I have a 30-year mortgage, which, you know, more than half of Americans do. And guess what? That is 30 years of guaranteed rent control that the government provides me. The 30-year mortgage was a creation actually of the New Deal. So you know, homeowners get rent relief essentially uh, through the 30-year mortgage, which is a form of public rent control. We just decided not to provide that type of rent stability to renters, unfortunately. And so in order to provide a, a true right to housing, you know, I talk about two key policies in the, in the book. One is social housing. It's this idea that we need to build a tremendous amount of publicly owned housing across the United States. That's high quality, mixed income uh, housing 
And to draw on this, you know, we can look at our our, our neighbors in Vienna, Austria, which has been rated the highest, uh, the highest and most livable city for ten years running now. <clears throat> and and in Vienna, more than sixty percent of people live in public housing. I actually first experienced this in graduate school. I went to visit a friend, and I'm downtown Vienna, and I'm walking around her flat, and then I step out onto her lovely balcony, and I'm thinking how the hell do you afford this? And I flat out ask her my first question when we sit down to lunch is, so what, is your, what do your parents do? And she looked at me and she said, oh, my, my mom's a nurse and my dad's a teacher. And I'm thinking, okay, what? how do you afford such a nice apartment? And later on that evening, it came out that it was a, it was a public flat, right? Most people live in public housing and they pay roughly 40% of what New Yorkers pay for the same square footage. You know, and, and these buildings are not neglected public housing units the way we often see a lot of housing here in the United States. Instead, the city decided to actually invest in its public housing, not as a nexus of profit, but as you know, community, as home for individuals. And that's the change that we need to start making here in the United States. It's not how do we you know, provide enough carrots to get developers to you know, build more housing, but how do we take back control over our housing sector and make sure that we don't orient it towards profit, but orient it towards public need, which is more housing and affordable housing in particular. Uh, but we also have to learn from the mistakes we've made in public housing here in the US, often mistakes that were quite intentional, that I, I should add. Um, the, second, the second policy that I talk about in the book is rent control. So you live in New York, New York has some of the best rent controls in the country. I live in New Jersey, the, the state with the you know some of the most uh, variety of rent controls across the United States and some of the deepest history with rent control. And what rent control is, is it just simply helps provide some degree of affordability and stability for current tenants. Now, similar to the minimum wage debate 15 years ago, where every economist had this knee-jerk reaction that rent control was, that minimum wages and rent control were bad, I think we're on the cusp of a revolution in the rent control debate where people realize that you know no rent control doesn't lead to the worst of all possible worlds. And indeed, what rent control does is stabilize neighborhoods, make housing more affordable, and still allows landlords to make you know what we could deem a reasonable profit on their properties. You know, we're not trying to eliminate all profit. We're just saying that landlords shouldn't be able to jack up rents ten percent a year, year over year. The next rent that you discuss uh, is one that I, that I think is interesting uh, to be featured because it, it is essentially, you know, for the past 120 or so years has been a, been a right in the United States, which is, which is a right to education. So I was wondering if you could talk about that uh, and also just about, uh, you know, education across, you know, all the way from K through 12 through college um, and, you know, even non, you know, non, um, uh, like non-college edu continued education, like, um, trade school or something like that. Yeah. So, you know, each and every morning, 51 million Americans wake up, roll out of bed and, you know, eat their Wheaties and go get on a yellow school bus. They go to school, they walk in and, you know, they aren't asked for proof of payment. They aren't provided a receipt because that education that they're getting is free. And that is one of the most important rights we have here today in America is access to free education K through 12. But why do we arbitrarily start it at kindergarten? And why do we arbitrarily stop it at 12th grade? And indeed, historically, that has not always been the case. High school did not used to be a public good. It used to be a, a private good only available to the rich. 
And then we had a grassroots movement that pushed to expand the right to education beyond you know, beyond uh, primary school into high school. This was actually at the turn of the, the 20th century that this occurred. And rapidly we saw more and more everyday people start attending and graduating high school. Today we find ourselves in the same predicament where a high school degree is often not enough. Not only not enough to get the job you want, but also not enough to you know be a fully informed, really well-educated member of our society and and somebody who feels confident and you know engaging in our political discourse, which is one of the most important functions of being in a democracy. And so we need to expand that right to both include you know pre-K and college today. Um, and you know I. I know this gets a lot of pushback. You know, people say college for all is regressive, or people say that you know it's the disproportionately wealthy kids go to college today. And those were the exact same arguments people made against making high school free at the turn of the century. It's true, disproportionately wealthy people go to college today, and it's because disproportionately wealthy people can afford college. But once we take away those financial barriers, you give people the actual choice the real choice to decide, do I want to go to college or do I want to do something else with my life? And then, you know, it's not a choice of, do I want to take on $100,000 of debt to go to college and hopefully graduate and hopefully make more money? Those are very different decisions. I don't think that's a that's a fair and free choice. Now, you, you know, you asked about trade schools and, and I fully agree that trade schools are a key part of you know, what is needed to improve our educational system, particularly as we seek to retool our economy away from a fossil fuel economy towards a, a green, sustainable economy that we so desperately need to address the climate crisis. You know, we're going to need a lot more electricians than we have today. We're going to need a lot of people to help insulate every home in America. You know, our housing stock is the largest consumer of electricity here in the United States. And you know, unfortunately, it's it's a housing stock that's woefully out of date. So we're going to need a lot of people to go to trade schools, and yes, I think that we've you know hugely underinvested in this area, and, and we can learn a lot from from other countries uh, like Germany, who've done a much better job supporting kind of pipelines for young people to go into trade schools and then go directly into very well-paying jobs. Another right that you, that you talk about, and you know, this is a uh, a right that really, especially a few years ago in the 2016 Democratic primary, was probably the, the biggest talking point was about a right to healthcare and whether or not our current healthcare system is working for, for most people. So I was wondering if you could talk about healthcare and some of the different policy ideas, especially uh, because it feels like people don't really talk about it like they did a few years ago. Yeah, you know, people talked about the right to healthcare in a Medicare for all type program just, you know, six, seven years ago as a pipe dream. And I think increasingly people are seeing that it's an eminently reasonable goal. And in fact, you know, analysis by the Congressional Budget Office, which are kind of the scorekeepers in Congress, found that a Medicare for all system would not only save tens of thousands of lives a year, but would actually be cheaper than our existing system. Right now here in the United States, we spend roughly one out of every $5 of gross domestic product on healthcare. And then we should ask, what do we get for that? What we get for that is one in four Americans uninsured or underinsured. What we get is a life expectancy that puts us at 28th out of 36 in the OECD. We're right next to Czech Republic and Estonia, countries that are far, far poorer than us. These are not things we should be proud of. You know, what we need to do is think about how do we reform our healthcare system to ensure that people are provided with the life-saving and necessary care 
rather than you know a system that that maximizes profits for pharmaceutical companies for doctors for you know hospital executives and the like um and and it's a you know it's a program that is accomplishable you know there are multiple plans in congress today that would help transition us away from the current system we have to a universal healthcare type system um, now, one thing I talk about in the book is that you know I strongly disagree with arguments put forth by President Biden and kind of other more conservative Democrats like Pete Buttigieg, who argue for some form of a hybrid system, a public option, uh, which was part of Obama's original plan. Um, for folks that recall that, uh, and this is because that wouldn't actually accomplish a lot of the goals. Which, for me, the key goals here is to ensure universal access and also ensure cost savings so that we can afford that universal access and finally sever the link between people's ability to pay and the quality of care they receive. Just because you're a high income person doesn't mean you should be able to jump the queue and get better healthcare or faster healthcare than your neighbor who might've just lost their job. You know, healthcare needs to be put on a level playing field. And to actually accomplish that, we need to full out decommodify healthcare, take it out of the market. The marketplace is really good at some things. You know, I go to the grocery store and I see that it's October here in New England. Apples are on sale, and you know I should buy apples instead of oranges because those oranges are coming from you know, Florida or, or or Mexico. And markets are good at providing me with those small price signals, but they're really bad at providing me reasonable price signals when it comes to life saving care. They're really bad at providing me you know essentials when I'm trying to figure out what healthcare plan to to purchase. And so, you know, there's a, a tremendous amount of work to be done in this area, but I think that we have a lot of um, policies that have already been written that we can and should consider adopting to substantially improve our healthcare system in the here and now. And to, to follow up on this uh, theme of, of issues that uh, Democrat, that unsuccessful Democratic presidential candidates uh, put forth that, that ended up not being taken up, the next thing you discuss is, is a right to basic income. And banking, so uh, you know, I think that this is a really interesting one. But basic income, I, I find really fascinating because you know it's had, uh, to a certain extent, it's had backers as uh, as different as uh, you know Andrew Yang and people on the left, uh, and also Milton Friedman. So if you could talk about basic income and banking, you know, banking especially today in just the wake of all of these uh, regional bank failures. So how do you think about something like that? Yeah, you know. Basic income is one of these umbrella terms. And when we say people on the left and right both support it, it's often because they're talking about different things. So why do people on the right support a basic income? Because their plan is to gut this social safety net that is, you know, that Americans have. They're going to get rid of all public housing. They're going to get rid of food uh, stamp benefits. They're going to get rid of, of public education in many instances. I mean, Milton Friedman's biggest dream was to to abolish the teachers' unions and and just absolutely defund public education, and that's not the vision I think of the progressives that are that are fighting for a basic income. So what I talk about in the book is really how do we achieve economic security for each and every American. And earlier today, you know, we talked about the notion that some people might not be able to work, or some people might choose not to work for a variety of reasons. Currently, my partners decided to stay home with our nine-month-old and take some time off at work to care for them. And I think that that is work. You know, care work is labor, and so it, we need to figure out how do we reward 
that type of care work? And how do we ensure that you know everybody has the ability to to buy the basic things that they need? Now, the other rights in this book will ta- will create a tightly woven well-being state to ensure that people are housed, to ensure that people are educated and have health care. But providing people with some basic money will allow them to go out and actually, you know, as Milton Friedman argued, be free to choose. It'll allow them to go to the mall and figure out, you know, what type of blouse to buy or, you know, what type of cereal to purchase. You know, I don't think that that we should have government making all these decisions, not by any stretch of the imagination. And so, you know, the market's going to to continue to distribute most goods and services in society and making sure folks have cash in their pocket through a basic income is precisely how we actually provide people with a real freedom to choose. Now, Friedman and his con- his kind of configuration of this, I think it was a hollow promise. And I'm trying to figure out how do we actually give people that right? Uh, and so uh, the way I talk about a basic income is, is a little bit different, which is through something called the negative income tax. But I'll let folks pick up the book and, and read it to dive into the policy details there. Um, in terms of a public bank, now this is really interesting, you know, and I always talk to my students about this most semesters and none of them uh, ha- had heard this before, but from 1911 to 1967, we had a public bank here in the United States delivered through the postal system. You know, the post office served not only to send letters to your grandma, but also to function as basic banking services. And many countries across the globe today have robust public banking systems as well. Uh, and the only reason we got rid of it was because we had a fairly successful bank lobby that thought that it would cut into their business and indeed we shouldn't have a public service there, so let's cut it. Well, I think today you know, people are realizing two things increasingly. One is that the private banking system does not serve the needs of many Americans, particularly low-income people. You know, right now we see that uh, you know, millions of low-income people are using alternative financial services, things like payday lenders, not because they're not financially illiterate, but because those are the institutions that best serve their needs. There aren't brick and mortar banks in their communities, or they have very high minimums, or they require documentation that they might not be able to provide. And in fact, these predatory financial services sucked off $66 million through fees to help people cash their stimulus checks during the the heyday of the COVID-19 pandemic. So these are kind of vampires on the poor. And so you have groups like the Consumer Protection Financial Bureau try to regulate them from the top down and limit the activities they can do. And that's fine, but the problem is, is that people are going to these services because they need the services on offer. And so rather than just try to regulate them out of existence, I say, why don't we compete with them through a public banking option that would provide people with access to, to a public free bank account? Now, you know, this is one part of the issue. The other part of the issue, as you brought up, is banks. You know, we've had a number of, of kind of small and medium-sized bank failures that are, are really shaking the financial system and causing substantial amount of uncertainty and concern. And I think a public bank would alleviate that concern for the vast majority of people, essentially overnight. You know, And we can and should debate the details. There's different proposals on the table. In the book, I talk about reviving the postal banking system. You know, other people um, that that I've I've worked with have talked about implementing a public banking system through the Federal Reserve, which I also think is a reasonable approach. Um, so we should be we should debate the details here, but I think a public banking system is a is kind of a, a no brainer here. The final right that you that you put forth is a right to a healthy environment. Um, 
And I think that this is a really fascinating idea, especially just, you know, with our, our growing environmental concerns and, you know, worries about like the long run impacts of, of climate change uh, and, you know, and then also other problems such as, you know, food deserts and things like that. So, you know, how, how do you how do you think of a right to healthy, healthy environment? You know, the, the Green New Deal that lit America on fire, thanks to the youth activists at the Sunrise Movement really changed the conversation and how we think about both the climate crisis and the right to a healthy environment. They helped people open their eyes a little bit and realize that, you know, that what we're doing here today is just not sustainable. And whether that's driving around in Ford F-350s that get 12 miles to the gallon or you know allowing fossil fuel companies to extract on, you know, on lands up on Alaska's North Slope, as President Biden unfortunately just did by approving the ConocoPhillips Willow Project. And we need to think about how do we orient towards living within our planetary boundaries. Despite people like Elon Musk's best dreams, there is no planet B. You know, we're not going to all relocate to Mars. This Earth is our one and only home, and we need to figure out how to become better stewards of it. And so, you know, we need to transition to a more sustainable system. Uh, and what that means is, yes, reducing carbon emissions. What that means is, you know, rapidly doing that. But it also means ensuring that all people have access to clean air, clean water, um, and healthy soil. So you know, as, as the crisis in Flint, Michigan, I think really shook people to the core to realize that even our, our public water systems are just woefully underfunded and poorly taken care of. And indeed, the profit motive far too often seeps into these basic services and doesn't protect uh, people across the United States. So this right to a healthy environment is just getting back to the fact that you know we need to, to take care of the planet and in turn, the planet will take care of us. I mean, if we don't have a healthy planet, you know, the entire economic system becomes unstable because a, a clean and sound environment is precisely what underpins all economic activity from fishing to agriculture, which today make up a fairly small percentage of GDP, but but feed us. And if we're not fed, <laughs> GDP is not going anywhere, uh, to ensuring that you know places like Miami, Florida, or Savannah, Georgia aren't just wiped off the map due to rising sea levels. You know, I, I think that we are at a massive turning point right now, and we have the ability to pivot our economic system and what I, I think is really important here is to realize that, you know, yeah, individual decisions matter to a degree. You know, we need to, for instance, change our diets. You know, we can't all be be eating a tremendous amount of red meat on a daily basis. And, you know, maybe we shouldn't all be driving Hummers, be they electric or or fossil fuels. But, you know, the vast majority of the fossil fuel problem that we're faced with is not based on individual decision, decisions, but really based on corporate behavior. And so we need to, you know, take hold of those leverage points to to change corporate behavior and government behavior as quickly as possible to preserve uh, and and care for our planet. In part three of the book, you address uh, the, the age old question: How do we pay for it? So I was, you know, with all these economic rights and policies that you've outlined, uh, you know, I'm wondering, you know, how do you imagine that that we would flip the bill? Uh, especially in a climate right now where, you know, it looks like uh, there's, a, there's a chance that the U.S. government might default on its debt because we can't even raise the debt ceiling. So uh, how, do you, how do you view we would solve this problem? 
Yeah, it's a it's such a good question. You know, whenever uh, folks have political ambitions, the thing that always comes up is how are you going to pay for? It? You know, Medicare for all sounds great, but can we afford it? And then they answer no, which again, as I discussed earlier, it's factually false. Uh, but can we afford an economic bill of rights? You know, I don't want to lie; it is going to be expensive. Um, nevertheless, I think we can afford not to. Now, first of all, we need to reckon with the fact that our current system is already incredibly expensive. We lose so much human potential, not to mention GDP growth, by having just a third of our population graduate from a four-year college. We lose so much potential by having millions of people living on the streets, not to mention living in a crueler, less safe, more unstable democracy. So, you know, we need to reckon with the real costs of our current system, you know, not to mention, I mean, climate change. I mean, you know, the costs there are essentially incalculable. Um, so we can't afford to continue with business as usual. But how do we afford an economic bill of rights? You know, it's true that true that some things will need to change. So, you know, what are they? I talk about a number of them. First is we need to change uh, the budget of the U.S. government today away from subsidizing pollution and violence and towards subsidizing human well-being. You know, roughly half of our federal budget goes to military today. Uh, I think it's time for that to change. And instead, we we send our a message in the budget by saying that our, our national priorities are not war, but instead are taking care of human beings. Second, uh, taxes will indeed go up. Now, let me talk about this for a second here, because I think this is poorly understood. You know, I have a good job. I have I have health insurance. I pay $830 a month for my health insurance premium, not to mention all the co-pays and deductibles and everything else. Now, if my tax bill goes up by $500 a month, but I no longer have to pay that $830 a month in my healthcare premium, yeah, my taxes went up, but I now have, first of all, more stable health insurance, and second of all, more money in my pocket at the end of the day. So will taxes go up on most Americans to finance some of these things? Yes. Does that concern me? No, because I think that the vast, vast majority of Americans will end up financially ahead. Now, we can also add substantially more to the government debt than we have thus far. You bring up the notion that, that the U.S. government might default on its bills. I'm not too concerned about it. And the reason I'm not concerned about it is because this isn't an economic problem. It's not like the U.S. government's running out of money. This is a political problem. And to solve the political problem, there's a variety of ways that the Biden administration could could decide to handle it, one of which is just printing the, pl the platinum coin. Now, some people will say, you know, hey, that's a bit of a gimmick. And I'll say, yeah, I, I agree it's a gimmick, but the debt ceiling is a gimmick. Congress has already authorized, you know, paying for these programs. Uh, so, so I think that given that Congress has authorized paying for the programs once, we should not, you know, relitigate it, and the Biden administration should use one of these workarounds, and we should simply abolish the debt ceiling so we don't have to have these debates uh, where the Republicans try to put, you know, essentially a gun to the head of the American economy. The final thing I want to talk about in terms of financing an economic bill of rights is taxes on the wealthy. You know, I think that we need to have a serious conversation about what those should look like here in America. Under Eisenhower, a Democrat, sorry, under Eisenhower, a Republican president, we used to have a top marginal tax rate of 91%. And in fact, President Roosevelt during the New Deal proposed having a maximum income in order to protect both our economy and democracy from capture by oligarchs, which is precisely where we find ourselves today. 
The maximum income that Roosevelt proposed was equivalent to $425,000 today. I'm not sure if that's the right number. You know, maybe it's lower, maybe it's a quarter million dollars, or maybe it's higher. Maybe people are going to say it should be 2 million, 5 million, but I think that's a, the exactly the type of public debate we should be having. When we think about taxes on the rich, not only will that free up more economic space for us to finance these public goods that we all deserve, but it will also function as a way to protect our democracy from continued political capture that I think should, should concern each and every one of us. Well, uh, Mark, you know, it, it, I think, uh, you know, these are a lot of really interesting ideas. You've definitely given given me and, and our listeners, you know, a lot to think about, especially, you know, as uh, as, as the, we're, we're going to be seeing some some new debates and an election coming up. Uh, I'm sure that that a lot of these issues will be debated. I, I suppose, uh, you know, my my the one kind of final question that I'm curious of, uh, curious about to, to ask you just in thinking about these issues is, you know, a lot of people have have taken note that this kind of call for, you know, I don't know if you necessarily call these this, this idea economic populism, um, but but that, you know, economic populist ideas are starting to gain a bit more purchase on the right, you know, not as much just on the left anymore. So, you know, do you, th do you see this as, uh, you know, a left or right issue, or do you think that this is something that, you know, it's, it's reasonable for people to explore thinking about working across the aisle on some of these issues? Yeah, I, I wish I could say that I thought it would be reasonable to work across the aisle on some of these issues. I, I really do, but I don't see very much space for it. Um, you know, unfortunately, our country has become increasingly divided. Uh, but when I say I don't see much space for it, I'm talking about space in Congress, and that's quite different than space amongst the American electorate. We actually went out and polled the American electorate to see how they felt about these various economic rights, and the results were quite profound. So when we asked voters if they supported an economic bill of rights akin to what I just laid out here for our listeners today, we found out that 69% of voters support it with only 24% opposed. That's net support of 45%. That is resounding support. What might surprise some people is it's not only a majority of Democrats that support these ideas, it's a majority of Republicans and independents as well. And so the real fight in order to win some of these ideas is, you know, the fight for the electorate. I don't think we're going to move current members in Congress on the, within the Republican Party on these ideas. And I think we also have a real struggle with some of the more conservative members of the Democratic Party to bring them over to these ideas. But the American public gets economic rights and it gets them. So a big reason I wanted to write this book is to provide a, a North Star for thinking about what comes after neoliberalism. You know, people can critique neoliberalism all day, but until you provide a coherent alternative, I think it's really hard to think about a viable path forward. Yeah, that, that, that's really fascinating, and that, you know that that's a that, that number that you that you, uh, that you found in your study is is pretty pretty astounding, um, and and it's also very consistent with with other things that I've seen that you know a lot of these these issues uh, and these 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 programs that that have existed in the past but you know don't exist now uh, are are popular. Um, well, Mark, thank you so much for being being a guest on the New Books Network. Uh, it was great speaking with you. The book is The Ends of Freedom, Reclaiming America's Lost Promise of Economic Rights. Mark, thank you so much for being a guest on the New Books Network. Oh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you.